All right, guys, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12. So uh, we should be addressing a topic that a lot of people, well, a lot of people used to be interested in anyway, spiritual gifts. So I'm going to use a kid movie as an intro for this. There's this, uh, this movie out now called Encanto. Have you heard of it? Encanto. Uh, so it's like about a magic house and this you know special grandma and she's got like all these kids and grandkids and so you know when they get to a certain age they go and there's like this special door and they touch the door and it magically opens to their little special room and they're given some sort of a gift right and so all of these you know uh like the the parents so it's the grandma and then the parents and now you know we're kind of at the place where like the the grandkids are coming in and so all of these kids, they're getting these gifts. There's there's one there's one lady that's got, she's like super strong. You know, she's like, uh, you know, hey, we lost all the mules. And she goes and throws them all on her shoulder, you know, whatever. And then there's this little boy that, you know, he's like the latest one to get his gift. And he can talk to animals. And what? What did you say? It's like super cute. But I'm bringing this up because the main protagonist is this girl that has no gift. She can't speak to animals. She's not super strong. There's like, a, you know, a, one of the, the, the grandma, one of her sons is, you know, estranged and he's like got this gift of prophecy and he's made this prophecy about the house. But anyway, I'm using this as an example because they all have gifts, but it doesn't seem like, uh, and I, if I'd have thought far enough ahead, I would have gone and memorized the girl's name, but she's the main protagonist, that she doesn't have a gift. But she ends up being the one that kind of saves the house and saves the family and brings everybody together. So why am I using that as an introduction to this uh, session on spiritual gifts? Because I think sometimes we may overlook the fact, might be, you know, you might be one of these people that you have, if you're in Christ, if you have the Spirit of God, that you have a spiritual gift. And Elijah, I don't know if I turn this thing on. Oh, it is on. Okay, good. Um, and you might be like this girl, like this protagonist in Encanto and just think, well, I don't have a gift, but see, like her personality was the gift. She was just, she was the encourager to all of the rest of the people in the family. And so sometimes, you know, somebody that has, uh, I don't know, these are gifts that can be used for the Lord, but they're not necessarily spiritual gifts. Musicians, because we see our musicians up here all the time. Um, you can use a musical gift to serve the Lord or you can use it to serve yourself, or, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, gift of singing, athletic ability, that we can think of these things as gifts. But what we're going to look at here uh, in the scripture are gifts that are given by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, in order to serve the other members of the body. So a spiritual gift is never just for you. It's not for you to just kind of sit around and enjoy. It is always to serve the body of Christ and to extend the gospel into the world, okay? So with that in mind, let's uh, look into 1 Corinthians 12. I'm gonna read from the English Standard Version, and I have a copy of the new, the updated uh, New American Standard up here, which I may look at uh, in a bit, all right? So the Apostle Paul writes, "'Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, "'I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. 
Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. To each is given, to each, each person, each one of you, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the, same, by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills, right? Now, uh, ESV is a very literal translation, and I like it on the whole, um, and it does some things with this passage that I'm not terribly used to. Uh, I think when I first started studying this, I was probably using the New American Standard Bible, um, and it, so ESV is a recent translation. Now, it's very literal, and we, we, you know, for teaching purposes, I like that um, because it's not going to, you know, try to sort of hold your hand and say, hey, this is what this really means. Um, any interpreter is going to have to say, well, this is what it means in English. But uh, translations like the ESV and the New American Standard Bible are going to be the most literal word for word over from the original language. And so that means that uh, you have to have a little bit more understanding, a little bit more on the ball to, to recognize what's going on. Um, a translation that is more uh, focused on, well, what does this mean in English though? Would be like the NIV, the New International Version. Or even further in the dynamic direction like that is the New Living Translation, and I've used that. I don't like to teach out of the New Living. It's really good to read from when I don't have time to kind of break it down for you but I would prefer to, uh, to teach from a translation that is more literal. So you may see me going back and forth. The text that will appear on the screen up here, and for those of you that are online that will appear at the bottom of the screen, no, beside me, I'm sorry. I have the, the text appearing beside me over here, uh, will be from the English Standard Version, okay? So let's look at those first three verses. Um, in fact, since I already read the, the entire passage in ESV, let me read those three verses in the New American Standard. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, oh, they add sisters. Now that's new to New American Standard. Helps you to understand that when it says brothers, it's inclusive. And believe it or not, that's actually a very positive thing. There's this tendency to think, well, you know, this is very patriarchal and it's, it's not observing the significance of women and so forth. No, it actually is. See, um, in this time frame, uh, men were given uh, really, uh, women didn't even have the ability to have a say in the synagogue or, or to vote or any of these sorts of things. And in the Christian world, uh, men and women were included together and the word brothers wasn't a gender term. It included everyone and said, this is, you know, all of you, you, you are all equal, all of you together. So this is Galatians 3.28. It says that, uh, that uh, in Christ there is neither uh, slave nor free, there's neither 
uh, male nor female, but all are one in Christ, right? So that's why the New American Standard here adds and sisters to help you understand that. I do not want you to be unaware. So we don't want to be clueless about this. You know that when you were pagans, what does that mean? The Pagani, so that's an interesting word. Um, Christianity initially spread in the cities, right? So today, we often think of those who are in rural areas as being more conservative and therefore oftentimes more church-going, more Christian, okay? Well, the same was true here, except conservative meant that you were an idol worshiper, right? If you're a Roman, you were raised to believe in the Roman gods. So Christianity came to the cities, right? So we're reading the, the letter to the Corinthians, and uh, that is a city. It's a major metropolitan area. It was very much an economic center in this period. But as you moved out into the rural areas, you had people that were still holding to the old religion, the, you know, what we consider uh, mythology, right? You, you know, perhaps when you were in school, you studied Roman, Greek and Roman mythology. Well, they believed, they actually believed in those gods. They weren't just stories. So the people in those areas, in the rural areas, were called the Pagani, the Pagani. And that word, Pagani, meaning rural dwelling people, ended up meaning people that don't believe in the biblical God, pagans, right? People that are still worshiping, you know, the way the ancestors worshiped. So if you were in another uh, area, th these could have been people that were animists. They worship, you know, the wind and the waves and the trees and, you know, all of these sorts of things. So that's what this word means, the, the pagans. So he says, um, when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. And see, Paul's been raised as a Jew. He's known the one true God his whole life. He doesn't even know. I, I don't know how you were led to believe that. It's interesting. Uh, there, there are Psalms and there are uh, prophetic writings that talk about idols in this way. It's like, here's an idol and it's made of wood and it's covered in metal and it can't speak and it can't breathe and it, it has arms, but it can't grasp anything. It has feet, but it can't walk. Why are you worshiping this, right? So that's the Apostle Paul's perspective here. How in the world were you led astray to these mute idols? They can't speak to you. They can't give you revelation about, you know, uh, wisdom and knowledge and so forth. Verse three. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, I just said both of those phrases, didn't I? So, obviously, we're talking about someone who says something that they mean, not someone who just parrots words, all right? Um, so, Miss Mary is fluent in Spanish, and I understand a few Spanish phrases and and terms and so forth. I mean, I took three years of Spanish in high school, but Miss Mary could give me a Spanish phrase to repeat and I could repeat it and not have any idea what it means. She could even tell me what it means, but it doesn't mean that to me because I wasn't raised in a culture that endows that or imbues that with meaning. So we're not just saying somebody who pronounces the phrase, Jesus is accursed or the phrase, Jesus is Lord, 
is automatically in these categories. This means this is something that is meant, it's intended, it's coming from the heart, right? Um, so that's really a good test as to whether you are dealing with a believer or whether you're dealing with a fraud, right? Um, there's a kind of an extended um, breakdown of this from William Barclay. He says, there is the phrase, accursed be Jesus. There could be four ways in which this terrible phrase might arise. A, number one, it would be used by the Jews. Now, there are Jews that are believers. Paul was one, right? But this means those that had rejected Christ. The synagogue prayers regularly included a cursing of all those who had renounced their faith, and Jesus would fall into that category. Further, as Paul knew so well, Galatians 3.13, the Jewish law laid it down, quote, anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. And that's from Deuteronomy 21.23. And Jesus had been crucified. It would not be unusual to hear the Jews pronounce their anathemas um, on this heretic and criminal whom the Christians worship. Now, anathema just comes from the Greek be, to be accursed, right? So in Galatians chapter one, the apostle Paul says, if anyone comes to you and preaches a gospel other than the one that I preach to you, let him be, and the word is anathema, anathema, right? Um, number two, letter B. It is by no means unlikely that the Jews would make Jewish converts who were attracted by Christianity pronounce this curse or suffer excommunication from all Jewish worship. When Paul was telling Agrippa, this is Herod Agrippa, about his persecuting days, he said, quote, by punishing them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. So Paul, before he was a Christian, tried to make these, uh, his Jewish brethren, who had chosen to believe in Jesus, to speak against Jesus. That's what the word blaspheme means, by the way. Blasphemeo means to speak against. So uh, if somebody speaks against you, you're not, you're not divine, right? But in a sense, they're blaspheming, they're speaking against you. We see this all the time, right, in, in our culture. Uh, you know, the left is speaking against the right. The right is speaking against the left. You know, uh, these people are speaking against the former president. These people are speaking against the present president. That's all it is. It just means to speak against. So if you speak against God, you're blaspheming God. If you speak against Christ, you're blaspheming Christ, which means if you're characterizing Jesus as anything other than he proclaimed he was, then you are blaspheming, right? Letter C, number three, whatever was true when Paul was writing, it is certainly true that later on in the terrible days of persecution, Christians were compelled either to curse Christ or to die. In the time of Trajan, this is an emperor in Rome early on, it was the test of, uh, it was the test of Pliny, governor of Bithynia, to demand that a person, a person accused of being a Christian should curse Christ. When Polycarp, now if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, I believe the first martyr that it gives an account of is Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. When Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, was arrested, the demand of the proconsul, uh, Statius Quadratus, was, say, away with the atheists, swear by the godhead of Caesar, and blaspheme Christ. And that was how he was going to save his life, right? And it was the great answer of the aged bishop, that is, of Polycarp, who was very old at this point, 
right? He's in his 80s. 80 and six years have I served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So Polycarp ended up being burned alive because he would not curse Christ. There certainly came a time when people were confronted with the choice of cursing Christ or facing death. So this was the case in the first 300 plus years uh, of Christianity spread through the Roman Empire is that uh, there were persecutions that broke out periodically. Uh, The first one was in the city of Rome under the emperor Nero. And uh, a little later, that was in the 60s, the late 60s AD. A little later in the 90s, uh, we had uh, Diocletian. And then in the early 300s, right before Constantine became governor, we have Domitian. And um, these were all persecutions. The last persecution was the most widespread. uh, And this was right before Constantine became the emperor. And when Constantine became the emperor, then Christianity became legalized first, and then Christianity became the religion of the empire. And that was the early fourth century in the 300s, right? But until that time, I mean, you were at times literally taking your life in your hands if you were saying Jesus is Lord. Um, These emperors wanted to be seen as gods. This goes all the way back to the first emperor, Julius Caesar, right? Uh, Julius Caesar was the one that turned uh, Rome from being a republic into an empire with an emperor. He was a self-proclaimed dictator. And then he was murdered in the Senate uh, by, uh, I don't know, 30 or 40 senators stabbed him to death. And um, there was a huge reaction against that by the populace. And Constantine had adopted, he didn't have any sons of his own that were still alive, that is. And he had adopted Octavius, and Octavius became the next emperor, and we know him as Augustus, right? And that actually became a title in Rome, the August one, the exalted one uh, of the emperors, Augustus. They they would call him that, Caesar Augustus, right? Uh, Caesar the emperor and Augustus, the august one. So um, beginning really going back to Caesar, he wanted to be seen as a god. Caesar had uh, various um, buildings that were constructed to honor him and emperors, you know, Octavius was the next Augustus and going right on down through these folks, they wanted to be seen as gods. Um, They wanted to be worshiped. They demanded that worship. They demanded that you know, they be offered incense as, a, as an offering. And see, Christians wouldn't do that. And this is what caused the problem. They really, really wanted, and I want you to be careful, and I want you to think about this right now. They wanted Rome to be everybody's highest allegiance. And the face of Rome was the emperor. The idea here was Rome is who gives you your rights. Do you understand how different the United States of America has been throughout the years, at least down to our time. And if we still hold to the Constitution, we'll believe this, right? Uh, Declaration of Independence, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, all people are created equal and are endowed by the government, no, by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Those are rights that you can't cross. 
And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Your rights are given to you by Almighty God, not the United States government or any other government. The president doesn't give you a right. You have the right to freedom. And that's given to you by God. So when the government steps in and says, we will, we will give you this right or we will take this right, when the government steps in and starts wanting to support people so that people are dependent on it, it makes the government our highest loyalty. The government can't be your highest loyalty. God has to be your highest loyalty. And it doesn't matter who you vote for, if that is not someone, regardless of their religious affiliation, if that's not someone that leaves you the freedom to worship God in accordance with your conscience, why are you voting for them, right? Now, this might sound like I'm getting political here. This is going all the way back to Rome. This is what got the Christians uh, killed, is they would not say Caesar is Lord. The government is not God. The emperor is not God. The president, I don't care if it's Trump or Biden or somebody, they're not God. They don't give you your rights. They're serving you. You're not serving them. I don't serve the United States government. The United States government is there to serve us, to make it so that we are protected and so that we are free. And there's a whole lot of disturbing politics that has made its way into uh, the world today in the United States. And we need to take some lessons from these first century folks right here, right? Um, so that was the, the phrase, you know, to, to say that against Christ. And then he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Well, that's the fundamental confession of Christian faith. Now, understand what they mean by Lord. Two things. Number one, Caesar was Lord. He was the supreme loyalty. This is the highest loyalty. This is the one that is in charge above everyone else. So who's in charge of your life? Well, for most of us, it's me, right? I don't mean me, Daryl. I mean you say the word me, it's me, right? It's self. But when we choose to get saved, we would say, to get saved, you have to confess that Jesus is your Lord, that Jesus is in charge. You're not in charge. You give control over to Jesus and you say Jesus is Lord. Now, again, this isn't just parroting a phrase, right? If you just say these words like they're magic words, right? like waving a wand or something in Harry Potter. No, you are, you are honestly affirming, no, Jesus Christ is my highest loyalty. I wanna be loyal to Jesus above anyone or anything else. Then you're saved. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what we have to do in order to have that assurance that we have eternal life, is we affirm that Jesus is Lord. He's the highest loyalty. Not the government, not my political ideology, right? Not my significant other, not myself, but Jesus is Lord, okay? Um, so let me move on here. Let's go on to, to uh, verses four through seven. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. You know what? In fact, I'm going to go back. I've already read that in ESV. Let's go back and read that in the New American Standard and see how it renders it. Verse 4, 
And you can still follow, Elijah will put this up here and you can see the subtle differences here. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Verse five, and there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. Okay, I like that. And there are varieties of, of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So this can be seen as an outline uh, to spiritual gifts, period. Um, and I want you to see that these all always come from the Holy Spirit. Gifts are not natural, they're supernatural. Gifts are not what I work up. So there's a real tendency, I think, sometimes when someone has a certain gift, an academic gift, an athletic gift, a musical gift, it's so much a part of their life and has been so much a part of their life, you know, since they can remember, they identify with it so much and they, they take so much ownership over it, and they should, that they would want to say, well, this is just something that I have done, right? Well, you can improve these natural gifts. So somebody who has a musical gift, they still have to practice. Um, so I saw this, uh, and you guys have probably seen this too, um, he's probably older than this now, but the videos that I've seen are of this kid. I mean, he's a, like a, a little kid. They're like, I don't know. He can't be more than six or eight years old, right? His, his bottom barely fits on the piano bench. And there's an orchestra out there, right? And this little kid comes out in a tuxedo, right? Just cute little kid with blonde curls. And he comes out, you know, just trotting out. And he just, he sits the edge of his bottom on the, on the uh, the piano bench, and I'm serious. He he his legs are out like this, right? Because he can't sit up on it with his legs down. Because he's got to touch those pedals, right? I'm not a piano player, but I know you know one of the pedals is is, is gonna you know cause the the note to to carry out longer and so forth. So he's got his little feet here, and he just sits there and he just is listening to the music, and then he starts playing, and he's got these little bitty fingers, and he's just. <gasps> Just this incredibly complicated classical music. And I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. He's like eight, right? That's a gift. But I guarantee you that little kid has practiced a lot, okay? See, we need to exercise spiritual gifts, but they're not the same. Yes, you want to practice them. You want to use them, but they're different. You don't practice them to become better because they're coming from the Holy Spirit. So in fact, the more I put myself behind the gift and the more I push through the gift, really the more natural and contrived, we could say, it becomes. Um, we'll talk about that maybe uh, a little bit more in just a moment, okay? But um, there is a there's a division here that I want you to to get in your mind that is given to us. So there are varieties of gifts. So these are that's it. They're all gifts. They're all charismata, right? So um, have you heard the phrase charismatic? The charismatic movement, which started in the '60s. So you have the Pentecostal movement, which started in the early part of the 20th century. And that was a really entirely separate denomination, okay? Um, Pentecostals, there are, there are multiple 
Pentecostal denominations. You've got you know, Church of God in Christ, you've got the United Pentecostals, you've got Assemblies of God. These are all Pentecostal denominations that arose in the earlier part of the 20th century. The charismatic movement was a movement of the spirit, um, at least to a great degree of the spirit, that broke out within denominations. So there were charismatic Catholics, charismatic Methodists, charismatic Baptists, uh, I was a for a uh, maybe a semester, two semesters, I guess, uh, when I was at Baylor University, was a student there. Uh, I participated in a church called Highland Baptist Church, and it was a Baptist church, but it was a charismatic Baptist church. So they had an hour of music, right? Like, you know, everybody's kind of looking at their watch. If I, I hit 12 o'clock around here and people are, they're cool. They're cool. They're fine. You know, most people get it. We don't end at 12, but long about 12, 10, we're like, okay, stomach's rattling right now. Mm-hmm. Let's get this wrapped up, preacher. All right. And we're usually out of here, 12, 15, 12, 20, no later. Now, in the early days, we'd be here until 12:45. Okay. And that's just because I preached really long. Um, but you know, charismatic man, that church, the music was fantastic. I mean, it was really incredible. And there was a, a lot of focus and emphasis on the gifts of the spirit. The division that I'm giving you right now, I learned in that church. Okay. Uh, the pastor that was there was really, really gifted in this particular area as a teacher. And he laid this out the way I'm going to lay it out. It was a charismatic church. But it was a Baptist church. Theologically, overall, priesthood of the believer, um, the independence of each you know, church, uh, all of those sorts of hallmark Baptist doctrines. But it was you know, a, a church that believed in the gifts of the Spirit, and they operated in them. So pretty typically, if you went on a Sunday morning, the service would last an eh, hour and a half, probably. But they had other times, like they had a Friday night service. I never went to that one, to be honest with you. It was way out there charismatic. Like it was like people bouncing in the aisles and, you know, that was like a little bit rich for my blood. Uh, <laughs> I was like, the Sunday morning's cool. And, you know, we'll have an occasional thing that we're going to do here, but I'm not going to do all this other stuff that y'all are doing. Um, but in any event, that's charismatic. But it means grace gift. That's what the, the, the uh, Greek word means, okay? So those are the gifts, right? Now he says, there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord, right? So I like that here, varieties of ministries. Um, activities is the way this is translated. I'm sorry, no, verse five, varieties of service. That's good. So in our church, um, we have deacons, but we don't call them deacons. I call them ministers because the word in Greek, uh, that is the cognate, uh, or, or our English word deacon is a cognate of the Greek word diakone, diakone, right? And it just means servant. The Latin for that is ministre, and that's where we get our, our term minister, right? So I'm not a big fan of the, the term deacon, but I think minister is more descriptive of what that person is actually doing. They're serving, right? 
And I think it's a more, to me anyway, it's, it's a more exalted title. It helps us to understand that this person is doing something that is important. So in the world, oftentimes, the only person that is called a minister in a church like ours is someone like me. The preacher is the minister. Are you the minister there? Well, that's accurate. I am. I'm serving you. I'm serving the Lord. I'm the minister here. Okay. Um, and, you know, my ministry is to oversee the church and to teach. But what I want you to see here is that um, the Holy Spirit gifts people with places to serve and with more than, more than just a title or a position, with gifts that permit them to serve in that particular area. So we have tonight, brand new in the back room. All right, I got a, I got a young man there, just, he just turned 30. His name is Nicholas. If you were here earlier, you saw his two kids running around out here. Um, and he is our new youth ministry coordinator back there. And so I'm trusting that the Lord is gonna give him the gifts that he needs in order to serve our youth ministry. And then uh, there is uh, the fellow that leads our band here, Dean. Uh, he's been serving the Lord with his musical gift for 20 years here. And now he is going to start teaching our youth, right? So that's service, right? They're rendering service. And that service may be directly to people like that, or there are those that pray for this church on a regular basis. That's a ministry. Um, but I want you to see that all of these are gifts of the Spirit. They're not just things that we uh, force out and just uh, work up. They're things that the Lord sends down, right? They're the things, they're, they're things that the Lord blesses us with. And each of us have these, right? It says to each, to each, right? Um, verse six, there are varieties of effects or actions, activities, but the same God works all things in all persons, but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So as I indicated earlier, um, the gifts are always for the common good. They're never just for me. Even if it's something that blesses me and teaching you blesses me, but it's for the common good. Um, if we get into talking about this gift of uh, that's often called tongues tonight, we'll see that even that is a gift that is given for the common good, even though it is an expression that is very, very personal and very, very private to the individual, right? So let's look at this in, in three ways. Um, there are ministry gifts that are bound up and wound up in your personality, right? It's not just something you do on an occasion it's who you are. And those gifts, uh, we can see, uh, they are uh, spoken of in Romans chapter 12, right? So if you go back to one book before 1 Corinthians, you'll see Romans 12. These are not offices. This is, this is part of, of, your personhood, your personality. It's who you are in Christ, right? For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. 
For just as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually parts of one another. Now we're gonna see that expressed next week uh, more fully here in 1 Corinthians 12. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually parts of one another. So let's just think of the parts of your body. He's saying you are a part of the body of Christ. What part? What part? Are you in hand, a hand, an ear, an eye, the mouth, the feet? Are you following me? If you're a part of the body, that's what you are. And it's who you are. And it's not going to be something you're going to have to force. It's you have taken your place in the body of Christ. And that's simply going to be something that you consistently express. And then it is incumbent upon somebody like me to make sure that you have the opportunity to express that in this local church, this local expression of the body, okay? However, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, to us each of us is to use them properly. Now he goes through these. If prophecy in proportion to one's faith, if service in the act of serving, or the one who teaches in the act of teaching, or the one who exhorts or encourages uh, in the work of exhortation, the one who gives with generosity, the one who is in leadership with diligence, the one who so shows mercy, excuse me, not sows mercy, shows mercy with cheerfulness. So that's probably not exhaustive, but I remember in this church uh, that I mentioned that I was a part of uh, some years ago, uh, there was really a focus on helping people to understand which of those gifts in Romans might be their personal gift, right? The gift that, that most closely uh, is aligned with your personality. So let me just go through these real quickly. Number one, the prophetic personality. This is not someone that's always trying to foretell the future, right? This is someone who is absorbed with attacking sin and injustice. This, but think about the, the Old Testament prophets, right? They had promises that they offered, but the Old Testament prophets were there to attack injustice and to make the people of God aware of sin. Um, this is someone, the prophetic personality, who wants to bring about repentance and to make things right. You know, it's interesting to me, I see a lot of people in the world today that if they were to allow Christ to invade their life, if they were to confess Jesus as Lord and be filled with the Spirit, they might find that this is actually their gift, right? They're so concerned about, you know, all of these wrongs and injustices and so forth in the world. That's very prophetic, actually, okay? This person has obvious faith and only speaks in accordance with that faith. So as we move through 1 Corinthians, uh, we're gonna see that there were prophets who were standing up and speaking in the church in Corinth, and the Apostle Paul said, you need to speak in accordance with your faith. And of course, that's what we read in Romans as well. All right, then the, the uh, service. He said the next one, service. The servant personality is the unselfish volunteer who is motivated to get things done. This person will be interested in getting involved and doing rather than just sitting and listening and singing. Not that listening and singing is wrong. I am gonna tell you right now, I don't wanna embarrass this person, but there's somebody that is watching 
kids upstairs right now that is absolutely this person, right? This is, this is very definitely this lady's uh, spiritual gift. Uh, never asks for anything. Uh, this is somebody that as soon as something needs to be done, they're just gonna do it, right? In fact, uh, I think it was last, let's say it was last summer, uh, we had a, uh, we had a potluck, like we're gonna have this Sunday. We're gonna have a potluck this Sunday, right? Uh, bring Italian food, bring yourself, bring an appetite. And uh, we had a potluck and this lady helped. I mean, she was dragging tables down by herself, not even asking anybody to help her. I'm like, can I help you? Let me help you, right? Dragging these tables down from upstairs. You're getting things set up back here and doing all this stuff or whatever. You know what I found out later that day? It was her birthday. She never said anything to anybody. Further, the previous week, her kids had been at a kids camp. We didn't do kids camp last summer, uh, COVID and all this other drama. And I didn't, I didn't give the deposit early enough. And so we were not able to do that. Uh, so her kids went to another camp. And that Sunday, there was some sort of a recognition at the church that was uh, responsible for that camp. So her husband and her kids were at another church. She was here serving you. She's upstairs serving us right now. This is that personality right there, okay? Number three, the teacher is not merely a position in the church, but a personality who wants to share their knowledge with others. Craig is definitely a teacher. I call him the teaching pastor here. That's just, it's not just something he does, it's who he is. He's just, he is a teacher, right? I don't, I can give him something to do and he'll just, he just does it, right? So uh, he's, uh, he helps me with the karate club and he's a, he's a principal all day long in uh, Mesquite and barely gets here in time to get his kids and come over. He didn't even have time to put his karate uniform on. Showed up at karate last night and, uh, you know, I said, how are you feeling? You know, do you want to, you want to do a warm up? So he's there in his clothes from school that day and he's doing a hundred jumping jacks with the kids. And then he's just boom, 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 teaching, 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 teaching. So teaching is not just something you do in this context. It's something you are right. I, I'm just telling you these things because I think that this would help you to understand that being a Christian and going to church is more than just sitting and listening to somebody like me. I'm here to equip you, right? That's my job. So if we go to Ephesians, we see that there are positions where someone is ordained and anointed to do certain things. My position in this church is to equip you for the works of ministry. What I'm doing right now is not just to give you passing knowledge so that you can just go, okay, well, that was fun but it's to equip you so that you will be able to exercise your gifts. You will be able to minister in the church, right? Teaching, so I teach as well, um, but my position is pastor teacher. And that is a position outlined in Ephesians chapter four. It's not just something artificial that we do in the 21st century. That's been in the church since the beginning, right? Um, number four, the exhorter is an encourager. This is your perpetually positive person. You know these people? It's just, you know, you're like, I don't know how you're so positive all the time. 
But this is somebody, we need these people in our life, especially to offset the prophets. The prophetic personality is like, we need to change. We need to get this right. We're all a mess. The country's going to hell in a handbasket, you know? And the encourager is like, well, hold on a minute. There's a lot of good things here too. And there's good things about you, right? And you need that. It feeds us. It helps us to say, wow, okay. So God's not mad at me all the time. God actually does love me. And he does have a plan for me. And that's good news. Yeah, we need those people in our lives, right? This person wants everyone to be positive and filled with joy. They always see the bright side of things. They want to help people overcome their weaknesses with faith. Um, the giver may be gifted in the area of finances, but it's not just exclusively finances. This is just a very giving person, right? Um, uh, they typically do not live extravagantly. Uh, they, they're not ostentatious. If they have money, they're typically not very, uh, very um, overt about it. Um, they're not interested in, in having everybody know that they're, they're doing well financially. What they would rather do is to empower other people. Whether this person has wealth or not, they have no problem giving a large portion of their income. These people keep ministries like ours going. Number six, the leader leads and people follow. That's just, it's basic, right? So you can appoint a leader, but that doesn't mean anybody's following that person. Here's how you discover whether you're a leader. Look behind you. Anybody following you? Okay, then you're a leader. You can be a bad leader. You can be a good leader. But leaders are just, I mean, in the natural world, they're just leaders. So somebody like me, um, I was not a natural leader. I was very independent before I became a Christian, right? I didn't, I didn't nobody needs to follow me. I don't care. I'm just going to take off and go my own way, right? It's just, you know, independent. Leadership is something that the Lord put on my shoulders. It's, it's a calling that he gave me. And so as the result, um, you know, that's something that, th those are shoes that I have filled. Let's just say that. So you may not be a natural leader, naturally gifted, but that could be something, not necessarily, but it could be something that the Lord gives you if you will open up and allow him to do so, right? This person is not self-appointed, nor do they have to campaign to be the leader. Uh, they are recognized Everybody looks to them. This person leads the way as Christ did. So they're not selfish or egotistical. This person has zeal or passion, if you will. And finally, uh, the last of these personality gifts that are mentioned by uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, the mercy personality is concerned that people receive love and acceptance. So you would, it could be easy to confuse this person with the exhorter. But this person is often more in the background, right? Uh, more of a one-on-one -on -one type of a person. They're concerned that people receive love and acceptance. They're very compassionate. Their heart is going to go out. So they're not, they're not quick to condemn. So uh, something that I've observed in our country, in our system of justice, we say that a person is innocent until what? until they're proven guilty. But that's not the way it works. The reality is, as soon as they're accused, many, many people automatically assume that they are guilty. We're all, we are ready to jump behind the judge's bench, to sit on the jury, to point the finger, and we don't even know what's happened. 
and the person, the, I think the, the person that is gifted with mercy is going to automatically say, wait, 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 wait. We don't know that yet. We're, uh, we're such snap judgment people. We're just quick to judge, right? And the media drives this, right? The way they cover a story, you automatically assume that person's guilty. The reality is you don't know that. None of us knows that. Right. Well, I think the the person that's gifted with mercy is somebody who is willing to uh, to give everyone a second chance to to forgive them. And of course, you know, Jesus offers us mercy. So, and then he says there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. All right, these are ministries. Uh, this can be translated variety of ministries. This can refer to an office or a place of service in the church. I mentioned earlier the Ephesians four passage. Uh, it speaks of appointed leaders who equip God's people for service, which is what I'm seeking to do with you and for those of you that are watching right now. Uh, so Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, I'll just read this. Uh, I have printed it here in my notes from the English Standard Version. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that's the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So in one capacity or another, we're all called to serve one another. But these are offices, and these are offices really over the church Catholic. Now, we use that word Catholic to refer to largely the Roman Catholic denomination, but I'm referring to Catholic with a small c, which means the universal church, right? So these are people who are given this office to equip people in the church everywhere, right? So the apostle, what would the apostle be? That's a missionary. That's somebody who starts a church, right? Um, the prophet, this is somebody, once again, that addresses injustice, that addresses wrong, that wants to correct things. And this is not just somebody, you, you, this gift of prophecy is very broad. There's an office of prophet. There is a manifestation of prophet. We'll talk about that probably next week because I'm not going to have time today. Um, and there is a, a, within a church, there may be someone who occupies a position of ministry as a prophet, a someone who speaks forth the word of God, right? Uh, a preacher, a, a prophet is a preacher. Right, that's what we're talking about here. Uh, we're, we get so high-handed and heavy-handed with that term. A prophet is a, is a preacher, okay? Evangelist, this is somebody that preaches the gospel. There's no better example than Billy Graham was. All that man ever did was preach the gospel. Everywhere he went, he preached the gospel. So today, in my timeline on Facebook, I follow uh, Franklin Graham, his son, and there were pictures of Billy Graham in China in 1988. Now, if you remember going back that far, there was a very, very closed relationship between the United States and China at that point. Billy Graham preached in Russia while it was still the Soviet Union. Billy Graham preached in China while it was still very close to the United States. All he did was preach the gospel, was tell people that they had a problem with sin, that Jesus died for their sin, that he rose from the grave, and that he wanted to offer 
them eternal life. If you open your heart and receive this grace, this good news, this gospel, then you have the gift of eternal life. That's all he ever preached. Everywhere he went, I watched him preach Richard Nixon's funeral. There were five living presidents sitting as far as from me to that pew. All Billy Graham did was preach the gospel. He did not preach politics. That's why he was the advisor to every president, at least up until Obama. Every president called on Billy Graham to pray with them, pray for them, because he didn't take a political position. He just really tried to introduce people to the gospel and to be there for them, right? That's an evangelist, someone that just preaches the gospel. And then shepherds, that's a pastor, okay? So there's three terms that are used interchangeably here, right? An elder, an overseer, or there's an alternate for that, a bishop. A bishop or an overseer, it's the same idea, right? And elder, bishop, and then pastor pastor or shepherd. It's the same office. It's the same office. So a church that's larger may have a group of pastors. What should happen in the way it's laid out in our constitution and protocol is that um, we don't have an elder board. We don't have a deacon board. The pastors are responsible for overseeing this church. The ministers are responsible over various areas to administrate, to make sure that those things take place. So we have ladies that do our finances. They administrate those finances. Lige is up there helping me right now. He administrates our tech area. Are you following what I'm saying? They're, they're ministers, they're serving in that area. But I'm the one that's responsible to oversee this. And Pastor Craig is the one that's responsible to help me. As the church grows, we can add pastors, and then that could become an elder board, if you will. But they need to be those who are called to serve in that capacity, not just a group of people that sit around and fold their arms and tell everybody else what to do. Well, we need to hire a new pastor, don't we? Yeah, what do y'all think? Okay, I agree. Let's just go out there. Let's take some applications. Let's just hire somebody to come on in here and preach to us. You have no idea what the church is. I'm sorry, that's just wrong. That's backward. That's Call it a deacon board or call it an elder board. They need to be people that are overseeing and actively serving that church, right? And in the scripture that I read, it says those who are called to be pastors need to be able to teach. Hmm, that's interesting. So pastor and teacher, sometimes it's just seen as one office, the pastor teacher. Now, I think that there are teachers within the church that are not necessarily overseeing many people or perhaps don't have that administrative responsibility. Um, but nonetheless, uh, those are these uh, varieties of ministries. And varieties of activities, it says, but it is the same God who empowers them in all and in everyone. So this refers to the manifestation of the Spirit. Now, I'm not going to get into it this week. I'm going to cut this off just a teeny bit early. I usually stop at exactly eight. Um, but in verse seven, it says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, right? This is the, the demonstration of the Spirit, the showing out of the Spirit. And these are these activities that we see listed next. Um, I, in fact, what I'm gonna do, we're gonna talk about these next week, but 
I am going to read them from the New American Standard Bible this week, right? So these are actions that can occur through any believer, okay? So for instance, you're gonna see prophecy is one of them. You don't have to be a prophet in order to prophesy or preach at some point in time, right? You simply have a message that the Lord has given you and you proclaim or preach that message. That's an example. Um, it just means that the Holy Spirit is going to use you once you allow yourself to be surrendered to him and be filled with him, right? So verse seven, we'll just read these real quick. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, okay? Word of wisdom, message of wisdom is what that means. To another is given the uh, word of knowledge. That's again, message of knowledge, according to the same spirit. Verse nine, to another faith by the same spirit and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit and to another the effecting of miracles and to another prophecy and to another the distinguishing of spirits and to another various kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11, but one and the same spirit works these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So you can ask for a gift. In fact, the apostle Paul says, by all means ask. He says, he says you should ask for a prophecy as a gift, okay? So that you can edify the body. But you only have that gift as the Holy Spirit wills to give it. So it is a manifestation through you by the Holy Spirit. You're never gonna experience that. It's never gonna happen until you completely surrender to him and you don't quench the spirit. He's moving and you allow him to move through you. You allow him to speak through you. You allow him to move you to, to you know, exercise one of these gifts. And we're gonna talk about them all uh, next week, okay? So God bless everybody that joined us online.